I care, and, and I say this to my athletes too. I'm like, I don't care about your race. I, I mean, even if, like, I don't care where you are in three months. I care where you are in years. You know, like I'm always thinking on that way, and I want that athletes to find fulfillment over that long time horizon. Welcome to Training for Ultra, the podcast. Welcome to episode 52 of the Training for Ultra podcast. My name is Rob. I also go by Training for Ultra. And I have an exciting episode. I have David Roach. He's one of the world's best ultra running coaches. Um, we get to, uh, you know, chat ultra running for an hour. So very exciting episode. Incredibly nice guy. Him and his wife, Megan, are out in Boulder. Yeah, excited to... Uh, you know, meet, meet up with them in person at some point and just really appreciate David taking all the time. And then we speak with David Bronlick, who's on the CT, the Colorado Trail. He just walked right out his front door. Uh, you can check out that YouTube video. And he just hikes 30 miles to the start of the Colorado Trail. And the Colorado Trail is roughly 500 miles. So it's good to catch up with Dave. A lot's changed since the last time we spoke with him. And this episode's a light episode in, in terms of ads, so thank you to Hammer Nutrition, Sufferfest Beer, and Bigger Than the Trail, and of course, big thank you to the Patreon supporters. I will have a sneak peek at episode 53 for you guys already, so always appreciate your support, and uh, have fun out there. Don't, f- don't forget to enjoy your training, and enjoy this episode. I'm joined here by David Roach. He is one of the most trusted coaches in ultra running. David, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. I'm so excited to be on. I've loved your podcast for the last 50-some episodes, um, and yeah, it's fun to be on. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. It's awesome to have you. Truly an honor. You're you're like one of the nicest guys in ultra running, and I mean, a lot of the guys and, and gals that I interview trust you with their training, and I mean, that's their that's their livelihood. They're basically professional ultra runners as much as you can be. And, and when your name continually comes up, um, you know, I, I start picking up on that trend. So, uh, just an honor to have you on the show. Oh my gosh. Well, one honor for me to be on the show, but honor for them to ever put their trust in me. I barely put my trust in me. So, um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, it's always fun. The relationships with athletes are by far the best part of this. And like we're interview- we're doing this on Sunday, we're recording this on a Sunday. And, um, you know, it was a nice, it's like a nice intermission between like talk, like just talking to athletes as, as my athletes know, it's like, I get so excited to, to go over things with them every week and, um, you know, check in with them every day, even on the weekend. So yeah, I really appreciate it. Hey, it sounds like you've you found your calling. If uh, if you enjoy your work that much that it doesn't even seem like work, um, I, I think you, <laughs> well, you I'm found, a lawyer by training. Found something. So okay. I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer by training, so I feel like um, <laughs> in reference to being a lawyer, it's like the calling aspect of it was really apparent to me um, instead of like you know reviewing. Uh, legal documents and things like that. So yeah, coaching—it was easy to jump in with two feet when it uh, when it just kind of happened. I mean, I'm not going to dig into Duke legal 
or Duke Law. Um, I know we were joking that that was what this whole interview was about. Um, when when did you start running and and you know catching the bug and um, you know when when did you start taking running seriously personally? Yeah, well, I think in some ways our backgrounds have some overlap, and you know, I think it allows me to talk to to people and like identify a little bit with with some of the things that they might be going through on a day-to-day basis when they're starting running or, you know, in the first five or 10 years. So I went to college to play football, actually, which is crazy for those that know me now because I can't, like, it was tough for me to lift my phone to my shoulder to do this interview. <laughs> um, but I was a, I was like a big, strong guy back then. And, uh, you know, me at, me at 10 or 12 years old could definitely beat me up now. Um, <laughs> so I went to do that and, flamed out pretty quickly I wasn't cut out at all for college football um but I had so I was left with like you know I was like a, a real muscular guy and I always wanted to do endurance sports so in college started to get into biking and from biking got into running later on so uh, I you know I tell this story occasionally to athletes just to just to make them know that it gets better but I'll never forget my first run after so after football I just like no, I'm just done with this. I'm just biking. A year later, I did my first run. I got maybe 200 meters out the door before stopping, just like unable to breathe and so sore. And I was in good shape at the time. I just wasn't used to running. And my calves were sore for like four days after. And yeah, so it was a grind. It took it took a few years for my body to get used to it um, and all that to happen. And then when I went to law school is when I really started to, um, you know, I would say if, like, to use the word serious, get more serious about running. And that also happens to be when I met my wife, Megan, who was a field hockey player at the time. So it was like almost identical backgrounds. And we just kind of jumped in together. And so, yeah, it took off from there. I mean, we're not the type of people that do anything like halfway. And um, yeah, I started coaching shortly thereafter. I mean, we were always the people on our team that wanted to be the coaches, you know, like not in like a, just wanted to help. Like we got more joy out of seeing other people's success than like wanting us to be the star or something. Um, you know, I know I, neither of us have ever been that interested in that. So uh, coaching was a natural extension and just got super lucky that, um, you know, that took off really quickly. And so, yeah, it's now been like, I guess, eight years since then. And, um, <laughs> yeah, it's been really a really fun ride. I mean, that's that's awesome to hear. I, I relate a lot to pretty much all those aspects other than maybe the uh, the level of running that you've achieved. Well, um, <laughs> you started... You started, Rob, you started running three years ago. Am I right on that? Less than that. Like, yeah. Yeah. CCC will yeah, be yeah. the exact mark of uh, my third year, which is hard to believe. Oh, that's unbelievable. I, so in, when I, in my third year, I think the furthest I'd ever run is maybe 14 miles, um, you know, at the, around the time that you are. So in other words, like you're on a great trajectory and, you know, uh, I know it's hard because like, you're also interviewing some of the best athletes in the world but um you know it's all about exploring those own personal limits and it's amazing how far you've come and whenever i hear a story like that i mean personally just speaking back to my own journey because i was trying as hard as i can um but it's just like i wasn't able to do that even close uh i, I, I remember yeah. those runs that were around two hours for me and just finishing and being like oh my god i am never going to walk again i would often be like sick after uh, <laughs> so yeah mad respect for you I appreciate it. I mean, I literally, yeah, my, I don't want to dig into my background too much here. I'm interviewing you. I, <laughs> I want to hear about you. 
Um, but yeah, my, my dad's health scare really lit a fire under me to the point where, um, I really had to make a, a change and, uh, having those races on the horizon for me is just, it changes my life. That, that is training for ultra. Like I stick my hand in the refrigerator and seem to be choosing healthier things because I know I have that race coming up. Um, and it, it motivates me to get out the door and I mean, I, I want to kind of segue into what was your early training like and how has that impacted sort of like what you're recommending for your clients? I know each one has completely different backstories and needs and everything, but were you doing like the Hal Higgins half marathon training plan when you started off? <laughs> well, I think in some ways my background and coaching had like completely diverged over time, but it was important at the beginning, right? Like in terms of giving me whatever background I had. I mean, so I'm come from a science background. That's kind of the way I think. And so I was just interested in finding out how the body worked and, and what training methodology was actually like. And um, so, you know, I re- I've read everything that there was to read right off the bat and, um, you know, talked to everyone that was person and, you know, a lot of my friends that were on the track team in my college are, are probably sick of, probably laugh actually many of them laugh I actually coach a number of them now but you know back then I was the like the complete pretender that had no idea what they were talking about they were just listening to them <laughs> um, so yeah I mean I think I made the same mistakes that everyone makes at first especially you know moderately uh, like headstrong people that are like oh, I want to be great at this I went too hard um relative and didn't emphasize like aerobic development over time and had no idea what a stride was and you know, all, all these other things that uh, eventually coalesced around the, the, the coaching philosophy is like, <laughs> as much as you can say that, um, that, that we use now, though it varies a lot by the person. So, yeah, I mean, I think I made all the beginner mistakes because I think in some ways you kind of have to make those mistakes as a beginner because if you don't put your hand on the stove, you're never going to realize it's hot, no matter how much people that's, tell you. That's how, um, I, that's and, how I learned best, yeah. unfortunately. I don't just actually yeah, ex- no. experiencing it, you know, I can read about it a hundred times one way, but yeah. Yeah. And you know, as much as running is, uh, like you can have coaches or training plans or anything like that. It is a sport that happens in between the two years. Like, you know, I have all these athletes that like I view as some of my closest friends and I care so much about everything they do, but I don't run a step for them. Like, and, and I definitely don't, I'm not the one that makes it, like gets them out the door or, you know, motivate them or any of these things. And when this rate, when anything happens in between your two years, you know, as much as you're told something, it kind of takes some self-exploration to find your own answers. Um, so, you know, I kind of view my coaching philosophy now as being a partner in that self-exploration. Like my dream world is after I've been coaching, let's say, I mean, anyone, but let's say someone like Keely Henninger, um, you know, who, who has had some great races this year, winning like Sonoma and checking that, um, but like what I tell someone like her is, look, my goal is to get it to a point where we are kind of coaching together, you know, mm-hmm. um, where she's a, you know, she's brilliant. She understands what she's doing. And we just kind of go back and forth and, and uh, you know, use what we've learned over time so that it still has that self-exploration element as opposed to like, I never want an athlete to think of it as like an expert telling them what to do because that's not, I don't think productive as productive for growth for a lot of people. Um, yeah, that's my goal. How how much of what you do, 
utilizes like that science background and and how much of what you do is more the art form of a of a coach yeah i mean i think it has to be a balance right like if you coach someone based on exercise physiology you're missing you're missing a lot of the picture because uh, it's solely exercise physiology and i don't think any coach does this and uh, because the way studies work the way our understanding of physiology works you're only getting some of the picture. You can't incorporate every variable at once because there's so many hundreds and thousands of variables all being acted on in a way that's kind of like chaos theory where it's um, you know, nonlinear responses to initial conditions and what acts on the initial conditions. So if you're trying to like use studies to coach someone, yeah, that can influence it, but it, it can't give you any um, real insight into what training is. Meanwhile, what does incorporate all those variables is kind of the art form of coaching, training methodology, all these other things that have grown over time. You know, I'm very fortunate that I'm not living in the 1950s or 60s when people were starting to figure this out. Now, like, there's been so many iterations of uh, training philosophies and methodologies over time, and, um, you know, those are all incorporating so many variables, even if they don't always realize it. I mean, some of them are the top scientists in the world. Other ones are just coaches that go by feel, but they're all thinking of that. And so, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of people that came before yeah. us, kind of like one of those cheerleading pyramids or something. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that's a weird analogy, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. But, but, yeah, so in other words, like, I deeply care about the science and try to stay up to date on everything. And if anyone reads my articles, they know it's probably, you know, paint drying sometimes talking about it. But that only gives part of the story. And I think the other part of the story is the most interesting one, which is in what people actually do. Um, and what's most interesting, and why your podcast is so cool, is I think we're in when ultra running is concerned, the art element of it is still being figured out a little bit. And what I mean by that is, in road marathons, we've really started to approach the limits of human capability. We'll have more gains, but like a lot of the the general training principles are pretty thought out and understood. In ultras, you know, we're starting to understand it. There's a lot more info now, but there's really no like one thing or even like a group of five things like okay these five things work for these types of physiology we're all trying to we're all kind of figuring out as we go um, yeah. and that's why i think that's why it's so fascinating yeah i i'm the same way there's so many variables to like even if the person's doing everything right there's so many external variables because the races are so long and take so much time there's just makes it exciting for me at least i i just like the I mean, I, I love the physical aspect, but the mental aspect of ultra running is just, it's, it's almost like a chess game. Um, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm just in the middle of the pack, so I can't imagine the, uh, the chess games going on up at the front with the leaders. Um, so let's start off, you know, because I want my podcast to be essentially a resource that I wish I had when I first started ultra running instead of me reading a book a day for a month or two on ultra running and reading a lot of your um, awesome articles and and just having to search out like what are what what are the fundamentals if I'm fairly new to running or I've done a few marathons I mean from a coaching aspect are there is it easy to synthesize down into like these are the three main like fundamentals of of uh, you know what needs to be worked on to to gain that solid base so that running becomes fun? Yeah, um, I think you know we're always simplifying it, but 
for a slight oversimplification, I will even I will up the ante and do two. Um, nice. Two things that athletes <laughs> need to think about. Um, the first is the one that I think people immediately jump to. So we're going to start with the, the easiest one, and that's aerobic development, aerobic running, you know, strengthening um, all the all the different physiological systems that go into making running not feel like you know you're a uh, I don't know, like an elephant or something, like a, a blind elephant, I don't know. Um, and so what that basically entails is optimizing, increasing the amount of easy running you're doing uh, without getting injured. So how much an athlete can do varies by the person, but what that ends up doing is causing a, you know, a series of adaptations from cardiovascular system, your heart gets better at pumping blood, you can pump more per per each beat. You have more capillaries to distribute the blood to working muscles, um, angiogenesis. Um, you know, even some easy running even causes things like your lactate threshold and VO2 max to go up slightly, even if you're not doing intense work. So that's the, the most important thing to start with. But I think the other element that a lot of ultra runners miss at first is the importance of running economy. So running economy is the idea of how much energy it takes to go a given pace. And so the idea is to improve your running economy so that you're using less oxygen, you're using less energy to go. That's kind of like if you saw a pro runner running, if you saw Jim Walmsley running down the street, he's like, he's going extremely fast. Like most people look like they're sprinting at that pace, but his running economy is so good that he just looks like he's, you know, out for a gentle stroll. Um, But every runner can improve their running economy pretty remarkably. And the coolest thing about running economy is it will improve over the course of an athlete's career. So there's a few cross-sectional studies, like one done on Paula Radcliffe um, from when she was a teenager to an adult. Her VO2 max didn't budge a bit. In fact, it went down slightly with age. But what did change is her running economy improved, and she got way faster, even as these, this variable that's thought of a harbinger of performance didn't improve. So way running economy works in a nutshell, um, for a lot of people, is you need to learn to run fast to actually be able to run fast. Um, and I think a lot of people like prioritize at first, especially things like, okay, mile repeats, or even 400s on the track. Instead of being, oh, wait, I need to be able to run 20 seconds fast before I'm able to run five minutes fast, or, you know, God forbid, two hours fast, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where something like strides come in. And so, um, you know, for those that have probably heard me talk before, read articles, like I'm a broken record on this, but athletes need to learn to be able to accelerate and run and sustainably run at fast paces for short distances before they're able to extend that to long. So aerobic development and running economy form a positive feedback loop between those two and like never know what you're capable. And that's the, I think the coolest part of coaching is seeing people have that realization from like, you know, beginners to some of the top pros that like, are like Oh my gosh, what am I actually capable? Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And so, Doing track work, I mean, building that into your weekly routine, I mean, how how do you typically layer strides or, or track work or however you're, you're getting in the faster, harder sessions? I mean, is that a once once a week for a beginner, you know, or like a back of the yeah, pack same. or, you know, mid, middle of the pack guy like me? I mean, should I be strategizing so once once a week, twice a week? Well, I mean, the, the, how minor this stress is is pretty hard to understate. When I'm talking, like, strides, I'm saying, like, four to six by 20 seconds fast with full recovery um, in the second half of your run. 
something that in fast being not a sprint, but the fastest pace you can go while staying totally relaxed using your long distance form. So most people will gravitate towards, maybe a beginner would gravitate towards like a pace they could race for 800 meters. Mm-hmm. Someone more advanced might be a mile or 3K. Um, so these are really minor stresses, but the, really, the cool thing is they cause uh, these adaptations from, especially biomechanical adaptations, your, your body's ability to transmit power um, and do it in an efficient way that can make every pace easier, even 100-mile pace. So, I mean, for, for someone that's a, a beginner or true, like, never done this before, I mean, I would be like six weeks where we're just running easy with you know, a little bit of guidance about what easy actually means and doing things like anywhere from four to eight by 30 seconds on, or 30-second hills, which are a similar concept to start, and then progressing into four to six by 20-second strides and, even, and then more maybe as they progress just to cause, let these adaptations take hold where like we actually just let the body learn this skill and not force it to do a ton of other things. And how that would look in practice is maybe even like three to four times a week doing that in the context of easy runs. Um, and then once an athlete gets more advanced and adapts to this for the first time, um, most people on the team, though everyone varies, will be doing some version of strides, whether tills or flats or, or whatever. Um, probably three times a week like a, a typical week might be tuesday friday sunday type stuff um and it's not the it's not after an athlete adapts it's a very minor stimulus in the course of a week because it, it doesn't take much but reinforcing that over and over and over again really can make athletes go from you know thinking that their their potential is in one place and realizing that they're actually way more capable of fast paces than they ever thought possible that's interesting. I've I've come to that realization with distance. Um, speeds never never really popped up as a priority, but I mean, from for me personally, I mean, I think I naturally have built that into my training because I listen to music on most of my runs. So <laughs> when that four minute song comes on, you know, and I I get carried away. I mean, I think I'm naturally um, maybe building that in. I mean, so well. So I'm not, I mean, when I'm saying this, I mean, a four-minute interval is a good, long aerobic workout. You know, depending on how you run it, that's, it can be anywhere from VO2 max to lactate threshold. You know, so those are hard intervals. I'm talking about a totally, a, even a different way of conceiving of it where you're, like, actually learning to run, like, actually fast. Like, the, the type of pace that is the fastest you can sustain without, like, breaking down. Um, and, I mean, the whole idea is why is this important at all for ulcers? I mean, I think that if I don't say that, it's skipping a step, is, you know, the by improving running economy. So this, combined with easy running and some workouts, maybe like four minutes when a song comes on follow, could, you know, make running feel easier. So in practice, for someone doing a 50-mile race that might race a 50-mile race at, let's say, 14 minutes a mile, the reason that they're racing at 14 minutes a mile, part of that reason is how they consume oxygen, at their aerobic, where their aerobic threshold is, because where their aerobic threshold is determines how fast they can go before they bonk, essentially, yep. run out of glycogen stores. Um, but you do this stuff, your body gets more efficient. These little itty-bitty stimuli that don't seem to mean much, then let's say they'll, they'll make your aerobic threshold maybe a minute or two per mile faster. Now that same athlete is running like two and, two and a half hours faster in their 50 mile without really putting any like specific 50 mile stress in that or like big long intervals like you might think work for a 50 mile or like you know running up a mountain real hard or something like that um so yeah it's basically all about trying to find okay 
you know, you can exploit what you have already, which I think is what a lot of athletes do. It's like, okay, I'm this fast. I'm just going to try to extend the speed out as far as I can. But instead of doing that, if you're simultaneously doing that with like, okay, I'm actually way faster than I am right now and I can improve that as I go, that's where you get these people that make massive leaps, um, including pro athletes, beyond what you might expect. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really cool to see in, in action because you know, I think we all put some constraints on what we think we're capable of based on what we've done in the past. Um, and that doesn't necessarily always have to hold true, even when an athlete's in their 40s or 50s. That, yeah, that's fascinating. And how how much of this is physical adaptation versus mental adaptation, essentially training your brain to believe that you can do something as opposed to physically being able to adapt to do something? Well, I think they go hand in hand. But, I mean, my, my personal experience with athletes is that a lot of what they think is mental is actually physical. Um, you know, it's easy to look back on races and be like, oh, well, I was, you know, I didn't try as hard as I could or whatever. Well, it's like your body probably is the reason you didn't feel that way because it was holding you back in some way. Like you just talked about, you know, I'm not sure if it was on the podcast or before it started, but that at, at your most recent race, you finished in running really well and hard and it, it caused your recovery to be a little bit slower after. And, you know, in, in your head, part of you might say, oh, well, that was me wanting to push more. And what I would say to the coach is that's probably you just being stronger and fitter than you've ever been. So you're able to do this. And so your body's able to go a little bit harder. Um, and so, I mean, there is a massive neuromuscular component. So that is in your head in some ways in how nerve, how the nervous system essentially works to transmit power. Because running is a really complicated activity. People don't really put much thought to that, like what you're actually doing when you transmit power. And so these little, these little things I'm talking about, strides, easy running, things like that, make you better neuromuscular. You make you more efficient at uh, sending those signals. And that's why if someone does the strides thing I mentioned about, they might start to see really huge improvements in like a week. And nothing really changes in terms of your musculoskeletal system or your aerobic system in a week. But the way your brain works, the way your brain conducts these um, signals can. So, All right. I did have one question Shanna from uh, my Patreon said, uh, any advice from David Roach is welcome. He is so awesome. I do wonder what he is training for these days and who or what inspires him. Well, I think the first part of that question, Shanna, must have been my mom as an alias because I don't know who else would say that. But um, (laughs) the second part about what races I'm racing so I've really transitioned my mindset into full coach as in an athlete is kind of like secondary. Um, I love, I love, like, I never want to give an athlete something I wouldn't be able to do myself like mentally because that is important. But um, yeah, I just kind of make it up as I go along. I follow Megan's race schedule a lot. So I think she's going to be planning on some big races in Colorado coming up here and I'll probably race those as well, but nothing, nothing too serious for me. And then in terms of who inspires me, like, I mean, God, I'm inspired by so many people. And you know, it's always cliche to say celebrities, but I feel like it's more identifiable for when people know the other person. I'm always inspired by people that live life with this, like, that come at it enthusiastically. Because, like, for me, that's the, heart, that's the thing in life that is a choice sometimes. Like, depending on brain chemistry, we can kind of jump into life with exclamation points and, and as much joy for others as we can, or we can be reserved and, and ironic and things like that which, you know, have their place too, but, like, 
I prefer to tell people they're amazing and awesome like you did, um, then, you know, maybe like withhold that praise. So for me, like the first one off the top of my head is Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, if you don't follow him on Twitter, do so. He's the, um, he's the writer and lead performer in Hamilton and has done a million other things. But he's such a brilliant person that lives for others and it's so clear in what he does and produces. And um, yeah, so he's, I think he is my first non-running person. I'll try to answer it a little bit differently than might be expected. What, what is a training block? Because a lot of my listeners are, are probably, you know, training for their very first ultra. I'm not sure how extensive their marathon and half marathon type training went. I mean, what is a, a training block for an ultra marathon and what's a training cycle? And sort of how do you, how do you advise those for, um, for your clients? Those are amazing questions. I think in terms of thinking about training blocks and training cycles for someone that might be newer to the sport, or newer to long-distance running, it's it's not a necessarily helpful framework to view it within because, um, you know, the, the way a beginner is going to progress, or not even a beginner, an intermediate person, is going to be prog- like a ton over time. So breaking it down into a block where it's like, oh, I want to peak at this race, is overlooking the fact that, yeah, yeah, I care, and I say this to my athletes too. I'm like, I don't care about your race. I, I mean, even in, like, I don't care where you are in three months. I care where you are in years. You know, like I'm always thinking on that way, and I want the athletes to find fulfillment over that long time horizon, not just be building up to a race and then, you know, like building up to a race in a training block and then necessarily dropping off and all these things. So, um, you know, I think for most athletes, the best way to think about it is, okay, you know, my long runs will progress in a way that prepares me for this race, and then afterwards I will rest but not like, okay, I'm 12 weeks out from the race, now I need to start training real hard for it. Instead, be like, okay, this is a lifestyle that I can support long-term with ups and downs along the way, you know, building up the races, resting after, um, that allows me to reach my true potential rather than, like, segmenting it all into specific things. So, you know, traditionally, a training block might, or, or training cycle, let's say, for a marathon or whatever, would be 12 to 16 weeks, and a lot of people use similar things for ultras or even longer um, which is like a time where you start fit and you get really fit, you peak, you race. Um, that's not, I mean, there, it, it could help performance, but it's not necessary for performance. So I think it's a little bit um, not important for people to think about all the time. And a training block is perhaps a, a, a block of training within that cycle that focuses on certain areas of development, um, which is always important. You know, you constantly want to be thinking about how your training builds on top of itself over time. Um, I guess I'm just saying I don't think races should be the bookmarks in between, like the ends of the chapters necessarily. I think that that's sometimes putting races up on too high of a pedestal as well. Um, then might not always be the best thing psychologically for some people. I mean, am I under underappreciating races if I treat them as a long run? No, I mean, I think you can treat up races however you want. You can go out there and just, like, eat Cheetos every day. Honestly, I mean, <laughs> I think that gets back to running in general. I, I even, tell, even tell all the pros that, including some of the top people in the world, it's like, you know, all that matters is what you get from it, you know? And so um, when it comes to racing, yeah, it's great to use races as training runs um, because, like, one of the coolest parts about races is you're in this big community. It, it adds a sense of purpose. It does all these meaningful things that can add richness to your life. Um you know, so all races don't need to be hard. Even A races don't need to be mentally, like, like A races being the most important ones that you're really focusing on and really excited for, don't need to be 
um, you know, intense affairs. Um, I think that in general, um, taking anything too seriously with running is probably not the best way to long-term self-worth for everyone. You know, sometimes it works. It works really well when you're progressing and reaching your goals and doing all these things. But as soon as that, like, inflection point reaches, which we all reach, where we start to go backwards a little bit or, you know, we all start to age, we all get injured, um, all these different things. If you're putting every race on this pedestal where I need to be improving, I need to meet these goals, um, it can, you know, it can be like existential crises, like midlife crisis in a, a small little bundle. So all that's not to say that you shouldn't, you can't take, you can't enjoy it and really focus on it, but ever to like be like, oh, well, this result has to be great or it's not a meaningful experience is kind of where we try to really, um, you know, we're broken records with that with our athletes is, and, and they probably are, are sick of hearing it where in our, e- our pre-race email that we send them to them, the first line, or one of the one of the last lines that's in like approach to the races, we are stardust with delusions of grandeur. Just trying to get their idea like of of their own races exactly. and just broaden it out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think I've learned so much from just putting that type of thought process together, and it puts everything in perspective. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, you have good races. There's great days and bad days, and everything in between. It's the, the coolest thing about running and ultra running in particular is it's life distilled down into a bite-sized morsel that you can consume. And then like, if it goes, it, you know, it doesn't matter. Like it, it doesn't, all that matters, you control the narrative. We all control the narrative that we are living. And so emphasizing for all athletes, but especially beginner athletes that like, all right, how we're going to think about running and training is just as important as the racing. And all of that combines to form this picture of like how we conceive of ourselves. And the end goal of all that is to reach a, you know, a conclusion where, you know, we are enough, you are enough unconditionally. And so that's the key is the unconditionally part. And so races are great, but they can't be like conditional statements about self-worth. Like if I do this, then I am a good runner or a worthy runner or something like that. I'm a good person if I finish sub 24 hours. That's the hardest part. I mean, yeah, it's the hardest part. Um, I mean, I, I always push for having fun during your training. Cause a lot of times we're spending more time <laughs> training than anything, but I'm sure with a lot of your higher level, uh, athletes, it's hard to enjoy each and every one of those runs. Um, so just kind of, again, a, a one-on-one type question. I mean, for a 50 K or 50 miler, even a hundred K, have you found that there is, a uh, ideal distance that I need to be hitting on a weekly basis to have like a successful race. And I'm talking just finishing essentially. I mean, do I need to be doing a hundred mile weeks crushing middle of the pack <laughs> for a hundred K or a hundred miler? Oh yeah. No, absolutely not. I mean, it varies by everyone and what their goals are and things like that. But, you know, I think one thing, anyone that's been around ultras will, learn pretty quickly is that the amount you need to do to complete an ultra is way less than you would assume. In fact, I would say that a good road marathon requires more training than like a hundred K and possibly even a hundred miles for some people. You know, I think the, the reason is that when you're doing a road marathon, it's basically repetitive motion <laughs> like the entire time. So you need to be prepared. And, and for most people, you're operating right at the limit of your aerobic threshold. 
So it involves these, like, you have to be extremely efficient um, to get anywhere near your potential and feel like you did, like, feel really, really good in the process. Um, and that requires a lot of, a lot of, more volume than, let's say, maybe like 100K that's on trails where everything's different. You're going up, you're going down, you're hiking, you're stopping at aid stations, you're doing all these things that, um, like, change up the stresses on your body. So your body can bring a lot different, a lot of different skills into it as opposed to, like, road marathoning, which is one skill over and over again until you get to the finish and pass out. <laughs> and so I think people, like, and I don't usually put a number on it, but, I mean, gosh, for 100K, I've seen people finish feeling really good off 20 or 30 miles a week with a couple long runs that, you know, get a little farther. I think the key is all you really need to do um, if the goal is just to finish is one, the biggest one, is being prepared for whatever downhills are on the course because you can always walk uphills and everyone can, almost everyone can always walk as long as you're fueling. Um, the hard part is the downhills can just rip up your legs, eccentric muscle contraction, that basically make it so that, you know, you lose the ability to even move uh, much at all. Um, and so that downhill stress requires a little bit more work than, like, than other things. But then from there, I mean, if you're comfortable walking a good bit during the race, like, um, you know, you can, you can get by with lower volume than might, might seem like intuitive. Yeah. I mean, I've, I, I totally agree. I, I was so concerned when I first started, I thought I had to be doing like super high volume and then I started getting injured and, you know, each run wasn't feeling great. And I'm, I'm slowly starting to realize this, but I'm, fairly new to the sport um well yeah i mean so a good just i mean it's not not just like pros can also do different things i mean um you know claire gallagher last year um who who's on our team um before ccc which is a mountain race in europe was doing 50 miles 50 some miles a week and um before north face similar um and you know so she varies she'll she'll hopefully will increase a little bit this year but um you know Volume alone isn't the best predictor all the time, though, you know, volume over time really will help you grow. Being healthy and motivated and really, like, enjoying the process is way more important. So you're right, though. You, you definitely don't need as much volume as people might think. That's interesting. And what what have you found? Because I know you've just – how many athletes have you dealt with over the years? I'm, I'm trying to think here. Oh, my gosh. I have no idea. Hundreds, right? I have no idea. We never a, even count. A thousand? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. Definitely not that. Um, yeah, it's, it's somewhere, a lot. It's somewhere, it's somewhere more than zero and less than a thousand. Okay, we got a, we got our range. Um, yeah, yeah. For most of those athletes, what what kind of taper have you recommended? Because that's that's seriously an art form, in my opinion. I I've had good races with big tapers. I've had good races with bad tape. I just there's no consistency, and I mean I'm. I've done, I think, 15 ultras now, and uh, I I don't even really know. It's hard because I get that question a lot from people, and I mean, I try to lower my volume and then lower my intensity, but other than that, there's no real like science to it for me. I mean, what do you what do you typically recommend for your athletes? Yeah, tapers are hyper individual, but I mean. I think, and I think a lot of people see this. So my first requirement is one, you don't want training destroying you so much that you need to back off to like nothing before your face. That's not productive. And it's really not the way tapers work physiologically either. 
Um, so what I like to do is longest long run. I mean, it varies by the person, but usually three or four weeks out um, of like training. You know, they might do a race that's longer, like a 50 mile race or whatever, and training before they're doing that. Um, two weeks out, still do. I mean, most athletes. Let's say we're just going to take a hypothetical here and say an athlete doing like a 50 mile or 100k. Um, so two weeks out, they'll usually do just a hypothetical normal athlete in the middle of the bell curve, a 20 to 22 mile long run um, or something like that. As long as that suits what they've been doing in training, it's not like a huge step up. Um, then they'll do a really hard, 10 days out, so like the Wednesday before a Saturday race, do a really hard workout, something like you know warm up of a few miles, cool down of a few miles, and 10k hard in between on trail, like or a trail that you race, which sounds like a lot, and I think people are scared of that, but Nothing is really going to happen in your body that won't be fully healed by race day. And that stimulus can, like, as long as people recover in a normal way, can really help you feel good when it counts. Um, then a week out, still do a solid long run of, you know, maybe 12 miles to 12 to 16 miles, depending on who they are, but 12 miles being ideal. Um, and then even on race week, still do like a little 20 minute moderate section on your Tuesday run. Um, in, in other words, the goal is just normal training, but a little bit less. And mm -hmm. two weeks tapers is kind of what we swear by. But honestly, it ends up being like 10 day tapers because of that workout on the Wednesday or Tuesday before that varies. So, yeah, I mean, I think what I always tell athletes is your taper is extremely unimportant. The only thing you're going to do with your taper is make yourself flat and cranky. <laughs> um, so when you're thinking about tapering, you know, you do want to cut back. But no magic will happen within your physio physiology to make it worth like doing nothing for three weeks, essentially, which I think is what some people tend to do before ultras. So, yeah, you want to build up, slowly come down, and not do anything too um, anything too like crazy in either direction during training. Yeah. So it's like the two week period. Your body's not going to make any adaptations basically what whatsoever other than maybe altitude or something to that effect um and it just seems so i should be keeping intensity there um is that what you're saying in that two week two weeks and lower the volume more than anything and so the overall stresses will stay like gradually lower into race day is that am i understanding that right yeah you know, I think the best analogy here is marathon taper. So it's a general marathon taper that really works at the pro level is 75%, 50% race. Though, you know, sometimes people will do 75%, 60, 50, or, or whatever, um, over two weeks. So 75% of your volume in two weeks out, 50 in week one, one week out. Um, for ultras, it, it might be a little bit, it'll be a little steeper in the second week. So like, yeah. you know, 70, we'll often do 75, 25 or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but the basic principle is that if you take out intensity, you're, that will be when your body starts to, uh, like essentially there can be a little bit of a stress response within your body um, where if you're doing something that much different than what you've done, you'll end up very flat. Um, Steve Magnus, top coach Steve Magnus, who doesn't coach ultras, but um, you know, is a great, great thinker in this sport quote, relies on the, um, the term muscle tension, which is not the, you know, it's not like extremely defined in every study, but the, his, the basic idea is if you do just easy running and cut down your volume a ton, your muscle tension will really go, go down. And that's kind of that feeling of jello flat legs that we've all had before where it's like, whoa, I can't really move. I'm not springy at all. 
the idea of muscle tension is kind of harnessing that spring potential. And so, yeah, it varies by the person, but keeping some intensity in can really help optimize that. I, yeah, you described that really well. And like sort of related to that, um, what do you recommend in terms of, in terms of stretching and foam rolling? Are you a big proponent of stretching before you run? What, what kind of stretching do I need to be doing? And do you have a foam roller? Oh man, you just asked the most controversial question you could possibly <laughs> ask. <it. laughs> and I say that with, I say that with great respect. That's like, Careful, I don't edit here, like, so this this is going to yeah, go yeah. in. <laughs> asking about politics or something. Um, yeah, so I think what's most instructive on this is what people do rather than necessarily what all of the science says. Because what people do, I mean, people optimize this stuff in their own training well over time. So let's start with foam rolling, because I think that's the easier one. Almost every single professional runner on the track and roads, which is the place where you know performances are at the margin, so it really matters, does some sort of bodywork massage foam rolling. Um, and so, I mean, for me, it's like one of the first things I tell athletes that join SWAT, the summer call play team, that my coaching team, is like get to know your foam roller very well. Um, every night I want them on it for a while, whether it, or, or something similar, whether it's massage or, or something along those lines, that it really does help people stay healthy. Um, like yeah. thir- so 30 that, minutes, 15 minutes? Oh, my gosh, no. Um, just enough five. To, to basically get the thing. So five to ten minutes would be okay. awesome. Though, if not that, a minute or two is fine. Just, like, focusing on, you know, the whole leg. Um, and that's that's slightly controversial in some circles, but much less so because I think everyone does it uh, at a certain level. So, uh, you know, there's some exceptions, but they just, like, I don't really understand this phrase, but the exceptions that prove the rule. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But I kind of need that phrase, like, explained to me. Um, (laughs) And then in terms of stretching, I think that's a lot more complicated and varies by the person. So there are some athletes that, like, would never stretch if they're, like, dependent on it because there is some evidence that it reduces essentially what we were talking about, the spring return in your muscle fibers. Um, then there's others, like you'll, you'll go to a track meet. I was at the Stanford Invitational this year, which has some of the best runners in the world. And I mean, they're all stretching after their races. Like they're stretching a good, not like a ton, like not like yoga instructors, but they're all doing <laughs> static stretching. Um, and so, you know, I think I generally would prefer dynamic flexibility type stuff where your, you know, leg swings, things like that, lunges. But, um, you know, stretching really does help some people, it seems. And at least doesn't hurt because those are some of the best runners in the world. So I generally like athletes to do what's best for them. I think as an athlete ages, there is some compelling evidence that at raw flexibility matters because you lose um, some of that. So basically over 35 or 40, um, I do encourage stretching. Before that, it's whatever someone finds works best for them. With the idea being that none of this is like gymnastics class where, we're, you know, we're trying to prepare for like, the high beams or something like we're just trying to get a light not before running after running but before running i do like warm-ups that that really get the body going and do some dynamic motions but some some people stretch after running but don't quote me on that (laughs) it's it's weird because like i don't know if the body adapts to stretching and foam rolling so like you could actually do a bunch of stretching but then your body adaptations make up for certain things but I mean, for me personally, I've just tried to find a balance. I mean, it's don't be too limber. Don't be so stiff that you tear something like, I don't know. It's, 
it's definitely an art form and controversial, like you've said. Um, so I was going to ask you, in terms of recovery, um, from a coach's standpoint, if I'm an ultra runner and I, I just, you know, did a big ultra and, you know, maybe I wasn't redlining like, you know, like an elite would put everything into a race a lot of times. Um, do you have any any methods of recovery that, that you recommend? Because, I mean, I know I have Michelle Barton on the show all the time, and she's a big proponent of active recovery. And how active do I need to be for recovery? So this is another thing that varies a ton based on the person in their background. I think the, the best rule of thumb, because like rules of thumb are always nice to have, for, especially if you don't have a coach, is one that I saw, I think Pam Smith um, is the one that first came up with that, seeing Joe Wuhan um, expand on it a little bit for mountain races. But for every 10 miles you race, taking one day completely off running is a good guideline. So for a 50-mile race, five days, and if it's a mountain race, like a really like European-style mountain race, adding a little bit more. Um, that, I think, is, the, is a generally good principle, though you know different athletes and different experience levels can come back sooner from those stresses. And within that time, um, what, they, what an athlete does, I, there's no issues with, like, you know, your body's not a, fra- a fragile piece of, like, China that can't be dropped by any purposes. Basically, it's just to be active without, like, putting any stress on your body. So I, I love athletes. It's like, yeah, you can go on walks and even hikes. Just keep your heart rate down. You know, don't ever let it get above aerobic threshold, which is kind of like the pace where you're, or the effort where it's like, oh, I'm actually pushing this uphill, let's say, if you're hiking real hard um yeah. like biking basically the body the body wants to move so you know you don't want to take zero steps all day you probably don't want to hike 10 or 20 miles either um so just stay active walk the dog live your life live essentially live like a non-ultra runner for a little bit um and that's still thinking about your health like you don't want to just sit on the couch the whole time though there is a time and a place for that too i, I think that's good advice i i went for some easy easy miles and i'm like five days after silver king so the the 50 mile bike 50 mile run and uh yesterday i it was not a good run in the heat and i think i think that heat made my heart work maybe a little little too hard and it was just like one of those awful runs that makes you thankful for the good ones because oh it was rough well i mean i think that's an important important point is that when you do take time off, there is detraining, even when you have that big stimulus. Not detraining in terms of your lactate threshold or VO2 max, things that actually define you as a runner. What happens is your blood volume will actually go down a little bit. So your blood volume really responds to to training in a pretty rapid way. The day or one to three days is what most studies say. So when you take this, that time off, yeah, you're going to feel like crap when you return most likely because your body literally has less blood to pump through your system so your heart's almost going to feel like shallow and you're going to feel uncoordinated because um you know just the, the time off with your brain too but the, all that comes back really quickly so when athletes do return it's always with okay these first runs are just super slow and easy i love them doing it off the clock entirely it's just like go run a route that you know and just jog it like real slow um and then starting to add some of those like strides that we talked about which are nice um, stimuli for cardiac stroke output, um, which helps helps get rid of that thing. And within like three or four days, you should feel back to normal. But you'll ne- almost no one like it's counterintuitive. But the more like taking two to five days off, like especially within training, even at, not 
after a race, like in the middle of a training block. People are like, oh, I don't feel very good. I want to take five days off. It's like you're probably going to feel worse when you get back um, for, for a number of reasons. So you know, usually running easy through it within training blocks is a good idea. And then when you come back, running easy before you then like expect to feel good is a good strategy. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I mean, we've we've talked. You know, I have CCC coming up. I know a lot of runners are concerned about elevation gain. You know, like it's it definitely adds a twist to things. Um, how should I think about gain? You know, those mountain races, those Georgia Death races that, that pop up every now and then, and how how do you modify? your training to to incorporate enough of that so you i mean you don't get injured but you're also getting adaptations that make running uphill feel you know reasonable or at least power hiking yeah so when you're when you're coming up on a race or even just that that's the style of of course you want to be good at vert matters so how much you go out matters but it matters less than like might be intuitive um so the, the most important thing is how good of a runner you are. Running is running. You want to improve how good of a runner you are, whether you're racing 200 milers or 5Ks. Um, so never losing sight of that, the big picture there. Where it's like, okay, I don't want to just go up and down this local mountain every day because I will become a worse runner. My body will get worse at putting out power. And as I do that, my hiking will get worse too because if you, you're, it's all a percentage of your sustainable max output, you know, your lactate threshold usually. So like, if, you're, if you let yourself become a bad runner because you're overemphasizing vert in training, or not bad runner, but worse runner than you might be otherwise, you're going to be slower, even if you're really comfortable in the mountains. Um, but if you do none of it, you're just going to get there and find that your legs turn to putty as soon as you start incorporating some of that. So I think it gets back to a little bit of what we talked about earlier. The big thing to think about are the downhills. So uphills, it's basically your power output, which is very similar to your flat ground running mixed with a little bit of a strength component because of the up. So for that, it's basically you're running mixed with enough uphill to feel confident to, for your body to be adapted to the constant motion without cramping, things like that. The downhill is something that you do need to have pretty good stimulus to feel comfortable on race day to, to be able to take all that down. So CCC, you know, something, I think it's like, what, uh, 13 or 14,000 feet of climbing? Yeah, it's like, like 20, 20 um, 21. <laughs> Oh, some of the Strava, okay, some of the Strava I saw, I thought we asked it. Okay. Um, yeah, so when Claire did that last year, no, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm wrong. Um, when Claire did that last year, um, she would do a midweek, she would do like a running workout. I mean, she would just do flat ground running workouts like you might see any pro runner do. Um, and Tuesday, she would do something similar. Then on the weekends, she would spend a lot of time in the mountains just playing, essentially, um, and getting a lot of vert on those days. So basically her week was segmented into two things, like an early week and an end of week with early week being, okay, I'm working on running, end of week being, okay, just, you know, accumulating vert, feeling comfortable with downhills, pushing hard on downhills, fueling, things like that. Um, and that worked really well for her. It varies by the person, but like always keeping an eye on the running aspect of it, um, I think is the best strategy for long-term growth. Um, rather than just like putting it all your eggs in one basket and forgetting just, about that running speed. Hill repeats every day. Yeah. And, and yeah, I have, yeah. I mean, there's a place for that, but yeah. I, I have to say I'm a big fan of Claire. She's always been incredibly nice and just hilarious, fun person to be around. So 
um, must just yeah. be horrible to have to coach her every every day. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, she is she is the the one of the best people I have ever met for sure. That's awesome. And so I'm going to shift gears, and all of all of these insights have been awesome, and and we'll definitely have you on whenever you have time. Um, cause I was hoping to make this a little bit of a one oh one type session. And then, you know, as, as we get, uh, further along here, maybe stepping it up in the, in terms of complexity, but it sounds like you utilize this method that you've developed over the years, almost regardless of your, your running ability. It's just scaling it to the person. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I mean, I think the foundation, one of the foundational principles when we started coaching is that everyone is an elite athlete. Like, no matter where they're coming from or their background or, or anything like that, different people can absorb different things and require different approaches. But, like, I don't care more about an athlete because they have more genetic gifts or more of a background than someone that might just be starting running. And the same principles of, like, running is running and becoming a better runner, like, beginners might respond in a different way to the same stress, but the same idea is like at the bedrock of it. So yeah, I mean, I, I think it gets back almost to mindset of the athlete too. It's that it's so important to not like put yourself down as an athlete in like regard to your own level of ability. Because I think one, that's selling yourself short and making the sport a lot less fun than it could be. But two, you're going to train like a beginner as opposed to using these principles that have been used over time to jumpstart your progression and get find out what you're actually capable of. So, you know, I mean, I see this a lot in coaching with like negative self-talk where people talk themselves down over time. And it's not just talking themselves down that's a problem. It's that they train themselves down too. Like they train as if they're like reading a couch to 5k program for the first time, because that's the level that they assume that they're worthy of. And I'm like, no, we can skip that. We can, you know, we'll incorporate a lot of those principles. We'll start easy. We'll use run walk. We'll do these things. But you start out as an elite athlete. You chose the decision to get off the couch. Like, this is freaking awesome. And let's then build in a way that allows that to be sustainable. So you know, it gets back to controlling the narrative. Like, um, negative self-talk is the hardest thing to live with. And, you know, we all do on different things in life. But when it comes to running, like, you know, building yourself up, being like, yeah, I am freaking awesome. I am worthy of, like, the same elite training principles that a pro might use. Um, and using them can be really empowering and jumpstart training. Oh, I think it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Positive, a positive attitude will, will change your whole life regardless if you're running or not. I mean, it's, it's huge. Um, so shifting gears, uh, how do you see nutrition, um, you know, as a coach and, and you're coaching some of the world's absolute best runners, um, because I've, I've talked to Jason Coop and, and some other, you know, great coaches about, you know, this topic and it kind of varies. Um, do you think, I mean, is nutrition, where, where should it be? Like, where, where should I put nutrition within my, uh, my focus on training? Yeah. So my, our general, and I say our, my wife, Megan, um, who's a, a doctor, uh, is co-coach. Um, when our training, our nutrition philosophy can essentially be summed up as lots of it. Um, so that's a great simplification. But the basic idea is we need to achieve like positive energy. We want to avoid negative energy availability. So 
um, not having enough calories to burn to fuel running because that's what leads to injury a lot of the time and a lot of other calamities like hormonally and honestly like life like at a life level that runners face often um, you know fa- falling on that body image carousel where like your only your self worth is dependent on what you see on the scale or something like that so with our athletes we have like Burger Sunday where athletes eat like either a burger or if they're vegetarians or vegans, something that is kind of the equivalent for them, like some, you know, something that's like big, greasy and fun. Um, and, you know, we care. I mean, body composition does matter. I mean, that's un, unequivocal, but body composition does not mean being skinny. It means being strong and fit. So I would rather an athlete pee, you know, the strongest version of themselves than like anywhere near the lower limit of what is healthy for their body as a um, so yeah, I mean I think that essentially what we try to do with our athletes is reframe what they might consider the optimal runner's body for them into something that's really healthy for them long term growth growth wise. So like, you know, yeah, that means burgers, that means fries, that means doing things that actually fuel training. Um, while not totally losing sight of like you don't wanna you know, no one wants you don't wanna get diabetes or something, um, that it still needs to be healthy yeah. for your body. Um, so within that framework, we don't let athletes, I mean, you know, I'm sure some, someone might be listening to this being like, haha, I do this, but, um, we don't let athletes count anything or, um, you know, monitor specifics within their nutrition because that can be a slippery slope for a lot of personalities. Instead, we're just like, okay, let's make decisions that support our strengths, not decisions that support our idea of what we should look like day to day. Um, and you know, within that framework, we'll have some specific, some specific words of wisdom for individuals. But um, we start from that point. That's awesome. I mean, it's nutrition. I I was able to lose enough to actually start running. Um, and I I was I was so overweight at one point I couldn't run beyond a mile without like mm-hmm. severe shin splints. But since you know shedding that initial weight, I don't think my weight's really altered too much. Um, I, I have noticed, you know, when I'm in good shape and it just coincides with me weighing a little less, I mean, I, I have less to carry along with me. So just kind of the physics work out, but, um, it's something that a lot of people battle with. So I, I think your approach is really, really great. I think that Sunday, Sunday concept's awesome too. <laughs> um, well, so yeah, I mean, our, our biggest thing is, you know, <laughs> Like it's probably like boring for people, but because all we care about is like long-term happiness and joy. Um, one, food is like a really joyful part of life, and I never want that to be stigmatized. Disordered eating and body image issues are an epidemic in the running community that I don't think people always, you know, see or think about. And you don't need to be like skinny to have these issues. And just because you're skinny doesn't mean you have these issues. But, um, you know, it's so common. And it's common because the way we often talk about running bodies is in this way that is, um, you know, it's really hard to avoid slipping into that, into that cycle. So you know, our basic goal with athletes is anything that avoids that cycle is more positive for long-term happiness than maybe eking out, like, a 20-second performance improvement <laughs> that might come yeah. from... You know, skipping a meal being or something. Weight, yeah. That means. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so, and I'm I'm planning on having Megan on again. Um, I think she was on a, a earlier episode. Um, and always appreciate you guys coming on. What's the biggest lesson you've learned um, from a coaching perspective, or or you know, human perspective from your uh, <laughs> wife? Um, I think she, the big thing she taught me is everything. But uh, <laughs> the, to get to get specific, um, you know, I would say I didn't realize it at the time, but when I met her, I was like, you know, I was dealing with like this conditional self-worth thing where I was trying to reach some endpoint that I didn't really wasn't really fully defined, but it was always some endpoint that I was striving for, whether it was, you know, uh, winning a national championship or um, becoming the top in the law school or whatever, um, as opposed to like fully engaging and accepting myself independent of any of these circumstances. And that what that ended up causing for me at least was a, a little bit of anxiety, uh, not in any debilitating way, but in a way that like in retrospect was really hard. And I still have occasionally things of that, but never too bad. Um, and the reason it's not too bad anymore is because she came in and it's like, oh, I can accept myself. It's okay. I give myself the permission to fail, to be okay with, um, you know, going through life and not judging myself all the time. Um, and so you know, that kind of in a roundabout way led to like the the whole the whole coaching to begin with, which is like I said, I don't really care about the race results. I want these athletes to be fulfilled over time and you know, race results are one part of that along with a lot of other things. Um so our you know, and it all gets I think it probably where it culminated is um we have a book coming out this later this year and the very first line of the book is super dramatic, um, but it's followed by lots of jokes, I promise. Is <laughs> Every runner has the same finish line, death, um, which is morbid, but the idea yeah. being like everything that we think of as finish lines before, it's not. It's just checkpoint. We're just going on this journey. We're all on the same thing. We're all facing the same issues, whether it's your best friend or your worst enemy. And, um, you know, to give yourself grace and others grace within that process. And so to try to just be good and being good isn't just like being kind to others it's being it, reflecting that on yourself too and so that's what she taught me though i think she if she was in the room right now she would totally be rolling her eyes into the back of her head <laughs> that's awesome in a loving I, way, in a loving i'm way. i'm looking forward to that book because i i truly enjoy um everything you put out article wise and i think there's it, there's a depth to it that's pretty rare and um yeah i appreciate that um, and, and so on a, a lighter note, how many times do you get panic calls where one of your athletes is on ultra sign up and, and can't help themselves? How, how many times <laughs> there needs to be a hotline set up, um, like an ultra sign up hotline, like don't make a rash decision. Don't, don't sign up for <laughs> those races. Um, is that an issue well, with you? Do you, do you have, um, athletes and Mako and I were joking around about, uh, ultra sign up, but I mean, do you do you uh, force your your clients to like check with you to see if that race makes sense? Well, I mean, I always want them to check with me, but what I always, what I always say to athletes is, just because you signed up doesn't mean we need to do this race. There's no such thing as a sunk cost when it comes to like your body or anything really, because um, you know 
there is no reward. There's no like benefit at the end of the tunnel here unless you get joy out of it. So, like, I mean, when an athlete gets close to 100, even if we've talked about this and they've had it for a year in advance, often be like 10 or 12 days out. So, sure you want to do this? Why are we doing this? Um, not because I don't believe in them. It's because I truly believe in them, and I want to incite like an existential crisis about why they're actually doing this race to begin with. Because if you don't ask that before the race, like you're going to be asking it during the race. And that's like where you can really not like not enjoy running. So, yeah, yeah I mean, when an athlete says that, I'm just like, uh, like if an athlete, so an athlete does something that they're they're I know is not good for their happiness. I will really start digging down right away and be like, you know, we need to talk about this. If I think it's interesting, and which is usually, I mean, that, that's been like three times maybe in the history of coaching. Um, if I think it's something interesting, I'll be like, that is awesome because my, our, uh, one of our principles is that we support any decision an athlete makes unconditionally after it's made. Um, before we'll, we'll talk to them about it. But if it's made, it's like, well, we're going to support you. Um, and in that case, like we start being like, oh, this is what that actually entails and what it requires in training. Um, you know, I'm not going to let you cause damage to your body. So this is what we're going to have to do before there, before then. And, you know, once that happens, it can become a little more real and we can start having those other hard conversations. I always make a commitment to show up to the race. So regardless if <laughs> it, you know, once I put it on my calendar and this is again, middle of the pack, but um, I will volunteer at the race if, if I have some kind of injury that pops up, I know like quad rock last year I showed up and I shot some pictures for people and, you know, tried to help Nick out with some volunteer stuff. Like once it's on the radar, once it's actually on the schedule, like I will, I, I try to make kind of that commitment that, you know, whether I'm running it or not, like I'm going to show up and either enjoy the experience like on the trails or cheering people on and helping out. So that's helped me a I lot. Yeah. It takes the pressure off. Cause like, you know, I always, I'm always that guy who, uh, you know, does the non-refundable flights and you know, it's, everything's booked. So, <laughs> um, that's amazing. I'm going to, I'm going to steal that for our athletes. Thank you. Go for it. Yeah. I mean it, and it helps the community and it's such a great community. It's not like, it's not like I have to be running the race to really enjoy the experience and take it all in and, you know, explore a new part of the country. So I try to make the most of it regardless if, um, I tweak something or what, you know, whatever's going on. So I wanted to finish with one last question. I mean, I asked this to a lot of people, um, but I, I get a different response most of the time and I, I enjoy hearing, you know, the different concepts, but what kind of advice do you have for someone who is thinking about taking the leap into ultra running? You know, they have, they've done a few half marathons, maybe they've done a marathon or two and the 50 K of that local race has popped up on their radar. I mean, from your perspective, what advice do you have for them? So this is going to be a super lame response, but it's just, you are enough. And not only are you enough, like reframe that even to where it's like, no, I'm not just enough. I am perfect. Like wherever I am in this moment in time as a runner and as a person that, you know, both enough and perfect and all these things, they're all, there's no definition for them. So we really control, we can, we can be dictionary.com for this, you know, this existence based term. Um, so yeah, be like, yeah, I am really darn cool and good. And this is going to be fun. Um, because 
the with ultra running, you're really going to be start. These athletes are going to start probing the limits of their existence, of their physical natures. And so, when you start probing your physical nature in any way, if you start to think about it, you're also starting to probe your own mortality. Um, because what is a nasty injury other than a limit of, of showing of what our bodies do? What is aging as a runner other than oh wait, I see where this regression line ends? Um, you know, what is like just the existential crises that come with running other than a reminder that like everything here is kind of dust and temporal and things like that. So in that framework, you're going to get, as a runner, you're going to be, you're signing up for some of the lowest lows along the way. And the armor against that is this, this unconditional self-acceptance where you are not just enough, you are perfect. And no matter what happens along the way. So with running, that matters a ton because, you know, as you're training, you're going to need to, like, to get anywhere near your potential, you're going to have to overcome injuries, you're going to have to overcome terrible performances, you're going to have to overcome the psychological stuff we talked about. And the best way to do that is to have this, is this belief in yourself and what you're doing and all these other things that isn't subject to, like, the whims of, you know, our, our brains telling us that we're not good enough. So that is my really, like, I feel like that's one of those answers that would best consumed if people like took a bong hit right before you asked me i think that that was an awesome you you set the bar high for all the uh follow-ups that you know i asked that same question and i think it helps explain why i keep signing up for anything that's called a death race of any sort so (laughs) (laughs) that that is that is interesting that could be i feel like if i i'm not a psychologist case study but i feel like we need to sit that we all need to sit down with a psychologist or psychiatrist about that one. <laughs> well, David, I've I really enjoyed this and honestly, if I do end up ever picking up a ultra running coach, um, you and Megan are the first number that I'll call. I truly respect <laughs> you guys and uh, I truly trust you guys. And I, I think the okay. ultra run, ultra running community is, you know, voting with their feet and they they have you um you know under under uh, your you know their supervision so yeah i appreciate the time you've taken and i i definitely want to follow up with you in a few months and excited to hear that you have that new book coming out here in a few months so thank you for taking all the time well means the world to us and yeah we're available anytime we have a job where we just sit on our computers all day, as you've probably seen from my like immediate responses to things. So <laughs> I can't wait to be back on, and thanks for all you do for the community. Oh, I'm happy to do it. Where where can people follow you on social media? Um, well, our coaching website is swaprunning, S-W-A-P running.com. Um, and then you can just find us wherever you want otherwise, like Twitter, Instagram, our dog has an Instagram. Um, <laughs> but the basic thing is from our coaching website, you can find my email and, um, you know, I just, we love trying to, like, we don't really care so much about, like, the coaching, like, the specific coaching. We just like helping people. So if there's ever a question anyone has about any topic, you can email and get a response pretty quickly, and it'll probably require a bong hit. So um, <laughs> it'll be perfect. It'll be topical for this this podcast. So I, I can't I can't leave on that note. What's your dog's Instagram? Just out of curiosity. Oh, Addie does stuff. So A D D I E does stuff. Love um, it. Love it. That's, then, that's hilarious. Yeah, she's she's. A, I would say when we go to races, 
she gets more people that recognize her than we do for sure. <laughs> she's, uh, she's blowing up Instagram so, with live updates and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> she's definitely a uh, ultra dog. She has a, you, you can see her, her caption. She's, she's got a kind of a much better sense of humor than I do. So uh, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully that brings a little bit of joy to people's lives. Well, David, I appreciate it and uh, look forward to seeing you guys in Boulder at some point. And thanks again for taking all the time. Thanks, Rob. Have a great one. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Really appreciate it. I'm joined again by Dave Bronlick. He is through hiking the Colorado Trail, all 500 miles of it, and he even left his front door um, in southern southern Denver and tagged on an extra 30 here. So, Dave, I've been dying to hear from you, man. How have you been? I've I've been really well. Yeah, it's been um it's been a while since. We last spoke. Today is the thirteenth. Uh, last time we spoke was on the first of July, so it's been almost a full two weeks, and a lot has happened on the trail since then. So, yes, you can get right into it. Yeah, I mean, what what's the biggest um, biggest event to take place so far since we talked last? Um, the biggest event. Well, it kind of depends what you mean by event exactly, but. You know, the trail has once again taken on an entirely different character since um, we last spoke. A lot of it has been above treeline. Um, sorry if there's some background noise and outside at the hostel no right problem. now. But, um, yeah, uh, the July monsoon season has certainly arrived. I've gotten storms um, just about every afternoon since Breckenridge. Um, so that's been a big change and a big challenge um the worst storm i had was in uh, the collegiate west and i was at the end of this 30 mile day probably around mile 28 i was coming down this railroad grade and it started raining pretty hard just suddenly and i basically had just enough time to get on my rain jacket and you know up at like 11,500 feet that rain is pretty cold yeah and it rained hard for like a good half hour and i got really really chilled um and i hiked another maybe two miles like in the rain pouring down rain and got cold and you know by the time i got to camp it had kind of slowed down to this light mist but you know my hands were so cold that i couldn't unbuckle like the push tabs on my pack um so that was kind of scary yeah, um, that's super scary. Yeah, I, I was worried. You know, yeah, I said, well, am I going to be able to get my tent up and get dry and get warm? And, you know, eventually, you know, the rain slowed down enough. I was able to get some dry clothes on, putting all my layers on my hands enough to get my shelter system set up. But, yeah, it's kind of an eye-opening experience, and it really changed my perspective. I think in one of our last updates, we said that, or I said that my biggest, you know, fear out on the trail was lightning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely hypothermia after being out here. Um, this is day 17 right now. So, yeah, I think that's definitely the biggest the biggest risk of the thing um, I've been trying to guard against the most since then. Um, yeah, that night that I got rained on and I got really chilled, like, had all my puffy, all my layers, like, in my sleeping bag and... Like, I just could not get warm, like, curled up in the fetal position. I wasn't quite 
shivering per se, but I was just chilled and I really couldn't get warm again until, um, you know, the sun came out the next day and <laughs> they come out to like 10 o'clock just the way I was in this valley and like I was kind of the wrong side of it for the sun to hit me. Yeah. So, and it's just a, another one of those things where it's like when the sun's on you, it's hot. But the second like a, a cloud comes in and it starts raining, it can get really cold really fast. So it's tough to kind of balance the drastic um, temperature changes. So I don't mean to backtrack, but what, what mile are you yeah, on right now? <laughs> yeah, so um, yesterday around 3.30, I got to Spring Creek Pass, which is, let's see, I had the, the data book right in front of me, which is mile 357.4. And and then I got, uh, I hitchhiked into town. I only waited about maybe a half hour. And it was, of course, raining when I was trying to hitchhike, but you know, a nice family picked me up and drove me into town. And I stayed at the Ravens Hostel last night, stayed there again tonight. It's been a, been a pretty chill place. I mean, some other pretty cool hikers. So things are good right now and looking forward to get back out on the trail for the next mm, about 130 miles to Durango. And speaking of, I think last time we spoke, I don't know if we actually touched on this, but segments 25 and 28, were closed due to the wildfires in the San Juans, which mm-hmm. apparently are still smoldering. But um, as of, I think, yesterday, the whole trail has reopened. So I am going to be able to through hike the entire trail. The actual trail. That's awesome. I, really, I know yeah, you had really, that, really cool. yeah. that backup plan. I think we talked about that the very first episode yeah. that we okay. had talked about the CT. That's good to know. Um and I mean that'll be quite the drastic change with smoldering, I don't know, coals and stuff around you, and and having yeah. almost <laughs> had the hypothermia situation. You're getting, you're getting it from all sides. Yeah. Well, I don't think I'm exactly going to be walking on hot coals or anything. Yeah. I think it's at least eight miles away is like where the closest point of the fire is from the trail. But I did hear that 75 square miles burned. So. It'd be interesting to see what that looks like if I do get a view of it. So, so yeah, we'll how, talk, talk about that next time. How does it feel? I mean, you're almost 360 miles in. Uh, are you chafing? How are your feet? How are you handling that super high mileage without like really any break at all? Um, well, today I'm actually taking a zero day, which I had not planned on, yeah. um, which has been really nice. But, you know, my feet, you know, they, like I said earlier, they start to hurt, you know, after about mile 20. But, you know, just, just the rest, you know, makes a big difference. Um, they're, they're holding up pretty well. I did notice a blister um, a couple of days ago, but I only noticed it because I took off my sock and looked at the bottom of my foot and saw a blister. So it's amazing that it doesn't really hurt, but there, there was one there. Um, yeah. My feet are holding up, but my shoes and socks is a different story. Um, I'm around the Ultra Superior 3.5s. So I'm totally, you know, throw them under the bus. But, um, I mean, the fit's been great. The feel's been great. But they are showing pretty significant wear. I am going to try to gut out the last 130 miles in them. Um, but, yeah, I've been a little bit disappointed with how much wear yeah. there's been. Like, the toe guard is, like, 
completely like peeled off on both both toes. That's that's not not ideal. I mean, yeah. kick, kicking a <laughs> big ideal. rock or whatnot. You'll have to yeah, take a well, picture I mean, it's of there, them. It's there, but it's just like separated. Yeah, I'll do that. And like rocks get stuck in there. So oh, geez. Yeah. So how how is muscle soreness? Like, is your lower back hurt from your big? I know you said it ranges from 18 pounds to 40 pounds. Um, yeah. It, what, what's your muscle soreness like? Um, you know, physically I feel pretty good. Like even at the end of like a long day, you know, I'm not that sore. And I think I was pretty stiff this morning. Um, but the, the challenges for me, um, definitely like hunger and dealing with the elements have been something that has slowed me down more than any i guess like physical physical ailments so far so i mean tell tell me more about the hunger i mean are are you finding you finding out like you're just burning too many calories and not able to keep up yeah i mean i don't know how accurate um like strava is with the calorie like burned estimator but um you know some of these longer days like i was looking at um, a 30 and a half mile day. The day I got, you know, that bad storm on me at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, it was like 30 miles and 7,000 feet of climb, like all above maybe 11,000 feet. And Strava said I burned 6,000 calories. I don't know. I feel, I feel like it's more than I that. Think, I think with a giant honestly. pack, yeah, it has to be more than that. Has, how yeah, do you... So it's just, it's... Oh, sorry. I was going to say, it's just impossible to really, you know, Stay calorie positive. You have to expect to go into a deficit, but it, it's tough, like to just deal with the hungry hunger. And you know, you have like your bag of food. It's like you can't. You, there's more food right in front of you, but you know that you know you have to make this food last. Oh, that'd be know, torturous. For the next couple of days. <laughs> that would be torturous. I'm used to showing up at an aid station <laughs> and just stuffing myself. Yeah. Wow. Oh, so you have yeah. to be super disciplined. <laughs> how how are you yeah. handling the altitude? Um, I think pretty well. And I think one of the updates I sent you, I said I was getting this was like early on. I said I was getting a bad headache, and you know, maybe it's the altitude, but I don't think so. The altitude's been fine. Um, I've done three fourteen-er um, side trips so far, and you know, really don't think I've struggled too much of the altitude i've seen some of the other people hiking the trail coming from sea level who are really having a tough time with it but you know living living in colorado for a year and you know running in the mountains just makes makes a huge difference that are you there yeah yeah okay um sorry no, it's no problem. Have you come across any crazy wildlife since we last spoke? I, um, I know you didn't see anything really to start <laughs> off with. Yeah, so actually, yeah, there's been um, a decent amount of wildlife. Let's see, I saw, um, I think, I think four moose, two for sure, and then I thought I saw two other ones in this meadow, but it was pretty dark, so I couldn't tell for sure. Um, excuse me. Um, I saw some bighorn sheep on the top of San Luis Peak, which is uh, another 14er. Um, I saw mountain goats on top of Massive. Um, let's see. 
Yeah, I said I saw a bull moose. That, and that was pretty close up. So that, that, was, that was really cool. See, yeah, those, other those things can I, be aggressive. <laughs> um, I don't know. It was kind of, like, surreal as a thing. Like, we made eye contact, and it was, like, looking at me long enough, and I was able to take um, quite a few pictures of it. Oh, cool. So, yeah. Have you – so, besides really – worried. I was going to charge it, yeah. Sorry. No, that's fine. Besides that um, that moment of hypothermia – like almost hyperthermic and not being able to open things because your hands are so cold. Um, have yeah. you had any other like close calls, any other like scary moments? Yeah. Um, so yesterday when I was coming into um, the pass where I got the hitch from, um, there's the last maybe eight miles until you got to the road. It was pretty much all above tree line and yeah, there, obviously there's no trees above a tree line, and there are storms, like, all around. There's one to the left of me, there's one behind me, there's one to the right of me. But I could, like, see up the mountain, like, where the trail was going, and there it was blue sky. So I was like, well, there's only eight miles left to get to the pass, and I don't really want to have to take another night out here. So I kind of took a calculated risk and went for it, and... I got to the end of this place. It was like this three-mile-long plateau, like all above 12,000 feet, and there's nothing there. Like, there's this was grass, and there's no trees, yeah. and it's, like, really flat. So you're just, like, there's you're no the way highest, not You're the highest point. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then I see the storm moving in on me, and it's, like, three miles, and it's, like, I'm trying to kind of run with my pack on, but it's hard to run because it just, like, bounces around, and it's really awkward. Yeah, so it's, like, just more efficient to just go as fast as you like walk as fast as you can which is like an 18 minute mile so i was doing that across there and maybe like 0.3 until i got to the end of the the plateau the hail started coming down so i was like oh it's only 0.3 so before i like stop and put on my rain gear um i'm just going to get down off this ledge and then put on my rain gear so i got pelted by some hail and then on the rain gear and the thing is like it was you know sunny like when i was up there for most of it but like the storms are all around and then it bears down on you and it's on you and you know it goes from being hot where you don't want to have like all your rain gear on that doesn't breathe too well and then you know the next thing you know you're freezing cold when it is raining on you but yeah. i got my rain gear on you know made it off the plateau to the road um, there's a, a pit toilet there. So it's a able to go inside, um, get a little dry, and put on some dry clothes, and um, sit on the side of the road and stick my thumb out for about 35 minutes. I've never, I've never texted someone that said, like, oh, let's talk tomorrow. I have to hitchhike into town today. <laughs> I've never had that text yeah. <laughs> exchange with anyone. That's that was crazy. Um, <laughs> So I have two other questions, but before that, am I am I missing anything? Like, do you have any other um, just interesting kind of updates for us? Um, yeah, I mean, well, I just want to say that like the trail has been like absolutely beautiful um, from the section. The section I did from when we last spoke, Breckenridge to Spring Creek Pass is it's been like over two hundred and fifty miles, so. It's been a lot of trail, um, and then add in the three fourteeners that you did in between there. It's really been a lot, but I just want to stress to people, um, 
Yep, the Colorado Trail is absolutely beautiful, especially the Collegiate West alternate, um, which kind of diverges around Twin Lakes and meets back up again with the main trail after um, Monarch Pass. Um, but, yeah, so you diverge from Twin Lakes, you go up Hope Pass, which I guess is good Leadville training, especially with um, a heavy pack on. Yeah. <laughs> and then you go past Winfield, and the area back there by Mount Huron and the Three Apostles and Lake Ann Pass is, excuse me, I think, the, like, it's not the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. So if you ever get a chance to go there, go there. And if you're only going to hike one segment of the Colorado Trail, the segment to do is Collegiate West 3. Um, it was like 15 miles all above treeline. It's like pass after pass after pass. It was it was incredible. Um, and it was that same day I was talking about earlier that I did 30 miles and I got stormed on the end. I counted seven or eight different passes wow. I went over in that day. It was, yeah, it was unreal. And segment um, 21 coming down to Spring Creek Pass where I was yesterday was similar, where it's like a lot of different passes and a lot of them above tree line. Um, that was really cool too. And then the trail, like kind of in between those two spots, um, you're kind of in between mountain ranges and then you're on a lot of dirt roads and fire roads and Jeep roads and things like that. And that was kind of hard mentally because the trail is just so much less um, beautiful than it was. And it got really hot one afternoon and I got pretty scorched by the sun and it was really dry. Um, like there, there were water sources out there, but it was through a lot of cattle country. And this one water source I got to, uh, you could see the cattle maybe a hundred yards upstream. And it's like, this is like the last stream for like 15 miles. So it's like, you're filling up this water. And it's like, yeah, you filter it. Oh. But it like, just has this like cattle-y yeah. to it, which was yeah. pretty nasty. So, and I filled up my, like, two liter smart water bottles um with that water i carried it for i don't know 15 miles and then um there was a guy doing trail magic at the end of segment 18 and he just had a cooler set up with some water jugs and I actually just was meeting the guy i heard from other hikers his name was apple which i guess is a trail name um i actually saw his truck driving away as he was heading down to it but um, he had a cooler there with some soda and Gatorade and lawn chairs in the shade. So pretty happy to dump out that cattle water and fill it up with some yes, yeah, uh, better tasting water than that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I have never heard the phrase trail magic before. Is yeah, that, yeah. It's pretty, um, is that like a trail, term in the trail angel? Yeah. yeah, so trail angel is someone who kind of just helps out the hiking community, whether it's a hitch or another common thing is to let a hiker kind of pitch your tent on their lawn or even come in their house or make some food. Um, someone who just like kind of help, helps out the hikers anyway, really. And trail magic is um, when someone does something like they leave out food on the trail for the hikers. Um, when I was doing, I might have told this story before, but when I was in the White Mountains in New Hampshire last year, um, there was a retired guy who had a trailer set up at a camp stove, and he was actually making omelets 
wow. to all the hikers who came through right there. That's crazy. So, yeah, that was yeah. really cool. Yeah. Um, or in the Leadville area around, I think just after, like, Mount Elber, um, I came across some hikers <laughs> coming down this hill. I, yeah, it was right before the, uh, the Mount Elbert Trailhead parking lot. And these guys were like, hey, you want a beer? I'm like, do I want a, a beer? So, like, did I hear you correctly? So, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I want a beer. <laughs> so they busted, they gave me a, a beer, and we just kind of sat, and I drank a beer, and we hung out and talked for, like, 10, 15 minutes. So, cool. yeah, it's a really it's a really neat community for sure. So last two questions. How are you holding up emotionally? I mean, is it is it taking a toll on you, or have you – dug into your ultra running background again and just been able to to kind of i don't um, know go into hike flow yeah yeah i mean definitely you know the hunger and just the general like, fatigue of being out there it takes its toll especially um dealing with the rain in the afternoon when you know it's gonna get cold um it's tough but you know it's kind of it's kind of what you signed up for you know i played football in high school and my coach had a science like we didn't sign up for easy we signed up for hard so it's kind of been a mantra of mine getting through the more difficult moments and just to nice. just to tough it out and you know coming into town and you know stuffing your face in town having some beers hanging out with the other tight hikers uh, it's definitely a huge morale lift so yeah, awesome. I feel pretty well fed right now and you know, pretty excited to get back out there and tackle the San Juan from the last 130 miles to Durango, especially well, we'll, now that it's open. I'll, I'll have some Sufferfest beer ready for you when you uh, get back home. Just let me know. Um, cool. yeah. So let me, um, let me finish up with how many days left do you have, like generally speaking? Um, well, today is um, Friday right now. Um I'm supposed to be getting a ride back to the trailhead from another hiker I met uh, a couple days ago uh, around 8 tomorrow. And then the plan is to be in Durango, hopefully by Thursday afternoon. Okay. So that would be five days, I think. Awesome. Man, you're almost there. You're like on the home stretch. I know. I know, right? I yeah. know the terrain gets know, harder and harder, bad. too, so... You basically we'll have see. to just do um, a hard well, it rock. <laughs> it got easier for a while. And, um, yeah, the San Juans, you know, before the trail, you know, I told some people, yeah, the San Juans scare me a little bit. So we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> we'll awesome. We'll see how, much, how true that is. And, you know, speaking of the San Juans, um, the owner of the hostel is walking around in a hard rock shirt right now. So nice. cool. Um, so last last question, and just to update the listener, I am going to pace Dave at Leadville for the last what fifteen miles or so. Yeah, and Rob, I really I really do appreciate um, you doing that for me on the in the middle of the dark. No, I I I look forward night. to it. I was from May Queen to Leadville. Yeah, I was as honored you asked me, and honestly, I mean that it it means a lot because I know that's a really really important stretch for you to get home. And I've uh, I've had pacers before, and uh, luckily I I think I'll I'll know that stretch fairly well. So um, yeah, I look great. forward I think... to it, and it leads into how are you feeling going into the Leadville Hundred? You're you're probably one of the first people ever to do the CT five hundred and 
some odd miles just basically as yeah, I don't know that much. <laughs> training. I mean, I do you feel like your leg, your climbing skills have have gotten any better? Um, I think so. I think I was a pretty decent climber before, at least for um, front-ish, middle-of-the-pack ultra runners go. But, um, yeah, I think I think it definitely helps with all the time on feet, all the climbing that I've done, like some, you know, 7,000 feet of game days with a heavy pack on. Um, yeah, so. That's awesome. Well, yeah, yeah, and I was going to say about, I, I was going to say about Leadville that, I think it's just kind of the perfect way to put a stamp on, um, you know, the summer and the collaboration that we're doing with you sort of sponsoring me with my college trail through hike going into the Leadville 100 to have you pace me, um, you know, the last, you know, half marathon or so awesome. back to Leadville. I look forward to it, man. It's going to be, it's going to be fun. Yeah. We'll, we'll get through it regardless. And, um, yeah, we will. I'm just I'm thinking if I ever get into hard rock, why not do the CT? Then I'm in Silverton. No. <laughs> have have fun out there, Dave. Stay safe, stay warm when you need to stay warm and okay. um we'll we'll stay in touch and get your your last big update hopefully um in the next week or so and and for the yeah. listeners background, we'll we'll try to include it um next episode. So Dave, thanks for taking the time again. Okay, yeah, thanks, Robin. I will definitely be uh, in contact when I do get to Durango. Awesome, man. Take care. See ya. And that's episode 52. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you again to David Roach. Can't wait to uh, make my way out to Boulder and uh, hopefully, you know, get to get the opportunity to buy uh, David and Megan a beer at some point. So really appreciate them taking the time. And then big thanks to Dave Bronlick. And best of luck on his last few days here. He should be finishing up any day, and we'll we'll get his uh, full interview coming up here. And then big thank you to the Patreon supporters. You guys are going to get a sneak peek at episode 53 very early. And, um, yeah, big thank you to Hammer Nutrition. If you haven't given them a shot, feel free to use my promo code 252888, and you'll save 15% off your first order. Big thank you to Sufferfest Beer. Trans Rockies is coming up. They are the big beer sponsor of Trans Rockies. Um, if you haven't checked out Trans Rockies, definitely take a few minutes. Uh, it's pretty epic. I uh, know I'm going to be up in the Leadville area during it. Hopefully, I can serve some beers to everyone. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a big event in Colorado. And I think you can even sign up for next year's Trans Rockies at this point. So very cool that they're supporting the trail running community. And, uh, yeah, it's just an awesome cause. And then Bigger Than the Trail, Tommy Byrne, huge thank you for uh, their support going into CCC. I know David mentioned, um, you know, some methods to training for CCC, and that's going to take, you know, center focus here pretty much right now. So going forward, um, I'll give you guys a lot more detail into – what's going on and then the big news is i got into the georgia death race for 2019 so i am going to have to get a railroad spike to uh begin to train with a little extra weight in my pack i'm pretty pretty pumped up i did not think i was going to get into that race i think it happens march 30th of 2019 
And man, I gotta already start looking into flights in Atlanta. So very excited for that. I love having a race on the horizon to always motivate my training. And it has to be scary enough to uh, truly, truly motivate my training and get me out the door. You guys have a great week. Truly, truly appreciate your support. Have fun out there. See ya.